Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. So welcome everyone. My name is Jenna Vinson and I'm a scholar of rhetoric and assistant professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Today is January 8th, 2019, and I have the great honor of interviewing Dr. Claire Daniel, an American Studies Scholar at Tulane University's Newcomb College Institute. Today we are going to talk about her important book, Mediating Morality, The Politics of Teen Pregnancy in the Post-Welfare Era, published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2017. I myself am sitting in Massachusetts as I speak to Claire in Louisiana over Skype. Claire and I met over email years ago when I had what I would call a fangirl moment after reading her 2014 article, Taming the Media Monster, Teen Pregnancy and the Neoliberal Safety Internet, published in this academic journal called Signs. The article was actually brought to my attention by a young mother activist I write about named uh, Catherine Arnaldi, who is the author of an award-winning graphic memoir, The Amazing True Story of a Teenage Single Mother. Catherine encouraged me to give their article a read, and as soon as I finished it, I jumped online to tell Dr. Daniel how impressed I was by her research and analysis, especially as I myself have been doing research and analysis on discourses such as these, and had not thought about these things in those ways before. Since that time, Claire and I have corresponded often, collaborating most recently on a conference presentation in November and uh, working together on a journal article. So long story short, it's truly an honor to be leading this conversation today. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm really excited for our conversation. Great. Well, I thought just as a way of beginning, it, you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, uh, what inspired you to explore the subject. Yes. So after I graduated from college, I um, worked as an AmeriCorps member for one year at an organization called Lifetrack Resources in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I worked with um, families on temporary assistance for needy families, the welfare program in um, Minnesota that's actually called Minnesota Family Investment Program. That's the Minnesota version of it. But um, I worked with welfare recipients to help them find work. And then after that year, I became what's called a job counselor and worked for another year directly for that organization. So no longer as an AmeriCorps member, um, where I was essentially a case manager for welfare recipients. And half of my caseload was made up of teen parents, of young parents. Um, and through that experience working in that program, I really became very curious about how, how TANF came about, how that program was designed and implemented and, 
and how it really how it came to be that I could be who I was this 23 year old um, you know middle class white woman um, in a position to sort of monitor the behaviors of people getting their TANF grants and um, and also in a position to sanction them if they weren't if they weren't behaving the ways that they were expected to behave on in this program and, and it was such an uh strange situ situation to be in that i really wanted to learn a lot more about how that came to be so i decided to go to graduate school in american studies um, and i went to the university of new mexico and my i did my master's thesis on the political rhetoric used in the debates that we that resulted in the passage of the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. Um, and through that experience, I really my my thesis was on the rhetoric of, of the innocent child within those debates. But one of the things that really stood out to me um, in my research was the ways in which young parents were being talked about. And I and and then reflecting back on my experience as a caseworker and having worked with young parents, I really felt like there was something really important going on there in, in how young parents were part of this debate and, and really key in getting this very punitive policy passed. So in my um, doctoral work, I focused in more on, on that aspect of things and really wanted to understand how did that happen and what has happened since. And so that's sort of what led me to um, doing my dissertation on the politics of teen pregnancy, um, looking at uh, political discourse on the national level and, and popular culture, because also right around that same time, there was this um, sort of flourishing of um, popular culture about teen pregnancy and young parenthood. And um, so it was kind of the perfect storm of, of, factors that led me to write my dissertation and then later re revise it into a book. Absolutely. There was a lot of popular media. Are you talking about the early 2000s, right? Right about then? Yep. And then, um, and even, yeah, really starting in 2008, I think, was when the biggest, um, when you had 16 and pregnant, teen mom, the secret life of, of the American teenager, um, pregnancy pact, Juno. Yeah all of those 2007 through like 2012 I think were the biggest uh, yeah so it's like you're focused on the politics of it because of your previous experience but it's like you couldn't turn away from all the popular media representations of it too I mean they definitely play a factor so mm -hmm. what is the main argument of your book if you had to nutshell it what does your book contribute to our understanding of this onslaught of popular media and the very substantial welfare reform act well i think um so the main argument is that there has been a shift in the way that we talk about teen pregnancy and the so-called problem social problem of teen pregnancy um since welfare reform so it that in the um in the 1980s and 1990s, we were really on the national stage talking about it as a, ra a heavily racialized problem, as a problem that's happening very much connected to poverty and the, and the issues of poverty um, and welfare. And that um, the, 
that the solution to this so-called problem was to reform the welfare state in order to solve the pathological reproductive behaviors of poor people of color. That was sort of like, in a nutshell, the, the dominant narrative around teen pregnancy and its really intimate connection to the politics of welfare. And then um, at, at the point at which welfare reform was passed in 1996, um, we really see a shift in that discourse right away. So even in just like the very next um, reauthorization, welfare reauthorization hearings, um, you see the conversation about teen pregnancy shifting away from discussions of poverty and discussions of the structure of welfare and, and, and even whether or not welfare reform is effective in addressing this purported problem, but um, toward um, an ex more exclusive, almost exclusive focus on just teen sex itself and the problems in, um, that are said to be inherent in, in teen sexuality and it's sort of uh, need to be regulated either through the main um, sort of methods of regulation were identified as either abstinence only education or comprehensive sex education. And that, those, that debate, abstinence versus comprehensive sex ed, really became the primary venue in which um, adolescent reproduction was discussed in, in the political in the political realm. And then you also had this burgeoning uh, popular culture um, phenomenon, which we just discussed, where all of the um, media around teen pregnancy was really focusing in on the personal aspects. Uh, and um, through this sort of multicultural framework in which um, you had casts of characters on 16 and Pregnant that were uh, variously raced, um, but mostly white. And so the, even the racialization of the problem is shifting. And so my argument is that this shift actually pulls, pulls the public focus away from the question of whether this punitive welfare policy has been effective in its in accomplishing its stated goals. Can you talk a little bit more about, because um, I, I do think one of the great contributions of your book is that you don't separate necessarily this popular media aspect from the political uh, powers that be, that like they're both working in very similar ways to kind of forward this idea and focus public public attention on one thing and not the other. But I think not everybody watches 16 and Pregnant and realizes there's a political message being forwarded. Can you talk a little bit more about how you, or what your argument is about those popular media outlets? Mm -hmm. And I know neoliberalism is a big piece of your argument. So if you have anything to say around that as well, um, what is that? <laughs> yeah, so, well, one of the, um, one of the things that really interested me when I started to look more into um, the generation of all of this popular culture was that a lot of it was coming out of um, partnerships between TV networks and this one organization, the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. And, um, and that then looking closer, more closely at that or 
organization, I found that a lot of the leaders of that organization were actually really instrumental in um, creating some of the social science and political discourse that supported welfare reform. So um, it was very interesting to me to kind of trace those connections between the political realm and the political discourse and the policy that was being enacted that had to do with um, adolescent pregnant, adolescent pregnancy and parenthood. Um, and then watching sort of how popular media became the venue for, um, for creating the message that and disseminating the message that these same actors wanted to see disseminated to the, the, a popular audience. And um, what I am arguing is that teen pregnancy is really a neoliberal social problem in many ways. Um, one in the sense that it it's a it's a way of talking about in the 1990s it was a way of talking about poverty um, through this personal responsibility framework and really making um, people's individual intimate choices and behaviors the um, the focus and taking the focus away from structural aspects of uh, of of our society that creates social inequality. Um, and also because the other aspect of, of my argument is that the dominant construction of adolescence as being this sort of distractible, risk-taking, liminal zone between childhood and adulthood um, really uh, was a, a point of anxiety for uh, the public. And so to say that teenagers are um, in danger of sort of ruining their entrepreneurial potential um, was a way of, of really creating all of this anxiety around um, teen pregnancy. And, and sh again, shifting the focus from, from structural issues, but also kind of creating this solution within popular culture, this supposed solution within popular culture, that if, if teenagers are so distractible and so drawn to trendiness and um, and popular culture and media and are so um, interested in social media that we can then utilize those tools to solve this problem as opposed to um, doing more substantive structural changes to our society to make it such that um, we are actually alleviating social inequality. So kind of the the privatization aspect, the um, personal responsibility aspect, and um, the this focus in on popular and social media as being the primary, um, the the as as being where the solution lies, really lent itself to a privatized uh, set of solutions. And when you say privatized, do you mean that it, this is something we don't we no longer solve with public? like taxpayer funds, we solve it through corporations and companies. Is that what is meant by privatized? Um, yeah, I think that is one of the things that's meant by it. I think so. One of the arguments that I'm making is that the teen pregnancy really helps us really helps 
uh, really shifts the focus uh, or the debate around how we maintain public well-being from uh, a debate about wealth redistribution via the state to a debate about um, teaching people proper behaviors via these privatized technologies like using the internet and um, media conglomerates. Yeah. Um, so privatization in that sense, I think. But also it's an interesting, um, another way of thinking about it too is, is privatization of citizenship. So a shift from thinking about public forms of citizenship, things like civic engagement and protests and as ways of engaging, of, of enacting one's um, one's citizenship in a desirable way, right? Yeah. To, to thinking about um, citizenship in this more privatized way that, that one performs their citizen, their, their best Americanness or their best citizenship through intimate behaviors. And, yeah. um, and that if you, if, if a person doesn't do the proper intimate citizenship behaviors, then they will be a kind of a failed citizen. Right. Sort of this picture, this image of uh, the young parent as a failed citizen who, that didn't kind of make it through that transitional adolescent, that crucial adolescent period into proper um, entrepreneurial citizen citizenship, if that makes sense. That does make sense to me. So it's like they fail to follow this like orderly, first you finish education, then you find a mate and probably yeah. a heterosexual mate, and then, you know, buy home. And so, so now it's like, that's not an individual choice or something. It's, that's how you be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So in your book, you, in, in Mediating Morality, and you, you've, you've spoken about this quite a bit, but you raise a really important point about how since welfare reform, discussions of structural poverty or poverty at all are kind of absent from discussion of teenage pregnancy or presented as unrelated. Um, you illustrate how popular representations of like 16 and pregnant don't even really discuss welfare or class status. Um, and I just wanted you to speak a little bit about why that disassociation of teenage pregnancy and poverty is so troubling. Because um, I think your book is suggesting that this is a problem. And like you've mentioned the multicultural aspect of these representations of teen pregnancy and 16 and pregnant. But I just thought, could you speak a little bit more about why it's a problem they're not talking about class and poverty in these shows? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, well, it's a problem for some of the reasons we just discussed, which is that um, even though the discourse of, uh, around teen pregnancy leading up to welfare reform was extremely problematic and uh, racist and pathologized young parents and pathologized communities of poverty and communities of color, it's still within it. Uh, held the potential for a discussion of structural issues. And, um, and you can see that 
in the political debates leading up to welfare reform, that people were still talking about the structure of our education and healthcare systems, the structure of our welfare system, our economy, job opportunities, urban geography, things that, that uh, had to do with how our society, uh, with these larger systems within our society. Um, and then with this shift that I'm tracing in my book, all of that is eclipsed by these, this discussion of um, sex and morality around adolescence. And so while I think it is, there are, there are pitfalls to talking about teen pregnancy as an issue, as a, an issue about only about poverty. um, I think that it's, it's really crucial that we, that when we're talking about reproductive politics um, and we're thinking about reproductive self-determination, that social inequality be part of that discussion and to, to completely um, remove issues of, uh, of people's economic situations and whether or not they're experiencing uh, racism or um, sexism or sexual assault or any of these other kinds of things that affect a person's reproductive self-determination, then we're, then, then we're falling into that trap of neoliberal intimate citizenship and we're re- reifying that narrative. Yeah. And that's so, that's so helpful for me to hear. Um, because my immediate instinct as someone who studies like resistive discourses and as somebody who had a child young and got asked these questions like, you know, what did you do to yourself? And of course you're poor. Uh, you had a baby young, not, not realizing I was poor before that. Um, <laughs> you, when, you, when you write about like poverty missing from teenage pregnancy discourse now, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, that's great. We're not being blamed <laughs> for causing poverty. But what you just so eloquently expressed is that we still, if we're really concerned about outcomes, people's lived outcomes, then we have to pay attention to the economic structures and how they influence and shape people's lived experiences and outcomes. And and while you're not necessarily proposing that we continue to associate teen pregnancy as the cause of poverty, we do need to talk about economics when we talk about lived experience. So... Um, that's really helpful to hear because my go-to is like, no, Claire, we need to not talk about poverty with teen pregnancy anymore. <laughs> so this was very great. Um, as you know, as I just said, I'm interested in efforts to resist the discourses around teenage pregnancy. I think uh, mm-hmm. that term should be go away and that uh, we should really stop pathologizing young pregnant and parenting people. And so I was really interested in this line in your book. You write, as certain forms of grassroots activism around rights for pregnant and parenting teens gain increasing ground in the battle over representations of and approaches to teen pregnancy, they challenge but also sometimes converge with the multicultural politics of intimate citizenship propagated through prevention regimes. And so I I was just blown away by that line. And I thought, 
I wanted you to talk a little bit more about how activist efforts um, can challenge stigma and shame that, that are trying to challenge stigma and shame. And here I'm thinking of No Teen Shame and, and the activist efforts you talk about in your book in New Mexico um, can, might converge with the politics of intimate citizenship and what might activists might need to keep in mind as we move forward in resistance efforts uh, so that we don't converge with these things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in, I guess the, what I'm suggesting is that activism against teen pregnancy prevention frameworks that do not include an analysis of how this dominant narrative of teen pregnancy has really aided and abetted neoliberalism and privatization and welfare retrenchment and the flexibilization of low wage labor, um, that, that, the, that activism that does not talk about that is in danger of reifying this framework of intimate citizenship because um, while it's very important that we um, that we focus on and that we talk about how teen pregnancy prevention discourses affect young parents and how and the the um, the ways in which they create shame and stigma. Um, it is, it's this, I think that, that an, an exclusive focus on those things um, can, can create a, a conversation that focuses, that is focused on whether shame is, is a good thing or not. Right, like we see, we've seen that discussion happen as a result of the the um, the kind of debate about the Candies Foundation, for instance. Like, is shame actually a productive emotion, and therefore um, this isn't a bad thing? And and that keeps us in this in this realm of talking about um, affective effects. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Um, and. And thinking about sort of uh, whether or not parents, uh, how par how young parents feel, and whether or not they should feel bad. And I think that 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 is, we do need to talk about how these campaigns make young parents feel. Um, but I think we have to also have that conversation grounded, as you said earlier, within questions of economics and uh, questions of racism and all of these things in order to avoid sort of staying within that that realm of intimate of thinking about it as a as an issue of affect or an issue of intimate behaviors um because i think that that can depoliticize it to a certain degree and yeah. and and then we we kind of can miss uh some really important ways i mean i think the shaming the shaming is it is it is a crucial part of the dominant narrative of teen pregnancy. And we can't ignore that and we shouldn't ignore that. And it's really important, but um, because we live in this cultural context in which, um, in which there is this overriding focus on the emotional um, effects of teen pregnancy and kind of the, the, the 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 TV shows and the movies that that focus in on sort of teen pregnancy as a problem because it causes teens pain or it causes them to be sad, mm -hmm. um, and that I think that 
that activists are in danger of kind of like playing into that narrative a little bit if we don't also keep in the conversation these this issue of how this dominant narrative has functioned sort of on the um, political level and on the economic level. Yes, sense? that does make sense. And I think it's something frustrating to witness. You had referenced the Candies Foundation, which is another organization that uh, perpetuates the dominant narrative on a grand scale, though they may be defunct now. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically that conversation about between no teen shame and the leaders of that organization about whether shame is excusable and how that distracts Mm -hmm. from a really coherent and political conversation about structures of economy, structures of exclusion, structures of um, all these things that produce inequality. Uh, and and really, the factual basis. This is what I write about in my book. Is what kills me about that conversation of is it shame? Is shame good or not? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that they don't ever confront or they pretend as if it is fact that teen pregnancy causes pre- poverty. That teen pregnancy ruins a young person's life. That's just assumed to be fact when we start to focus on shame and whether someone's been shamed or whether it's appropriate. And mm-hmm. if I may, I just want to connect. That sounds. Uh, very much like this shaming thing also contributes to what you argue in your book about adolescence uh, mm-hmm. being this kind of liminal space of unruly and distractible being. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think maybe if we focus, or if I'm understanding you correctly, if we keep focusing on just whether or not something shames in our cultural context where we treat adolescence as if it's this place we've got to discipline youth into being appropriate adults, mm-hmm there might, it, we might struggle in that battle because adolescents are supposed to be shamed when they do bad things or, or you know, I'm being ironic or psychotic, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I see what you're saying here is that if we keep it just on the level of shame and stigma that are experienced by young people, which is an important component and does cause structural inequality um, or contribute at least to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm we won't we we will can we'll play the neoliberal game uh it sounds like you're saying as we're we'll keep it on the individual level and the private level um okay uh what challenges did you encounter when writing this book um i i would say the the main challenges that i encountered well one was logistical um (laughs) and i think that when a lot of my research was internet-based um, for this book, and so I was looking at can- uh, at um, organizations' websites and um, social media uh, platforms and um, and responses on the internet to the different um, TV shows and movies. And so one of the challenges that I sort of had to confront was figuring out how how to deal with the fact that the internet's constantly changing. (laughs) Um, And so um, learning how to properly document the things that I was analyzing so that if I went back and they were gone, I could carry on, right? So that was one of the challenges. Um, And then I I would say the other main thing was probably more of an ethical challenge that had to do with the fact that I myself 
was not a young mom. Um, and so figuring out what is my role in, in this conversation and um, as someone who is, as I mentioned earlier, from a white middle-class background um, and of re relative privilege, how do I, um, how do I research this in a responsible way? And I think where I kind of came down on that was that I really focus my analysis on the dominant discourse. And, um, and so my questions, my research questions are really not about what is it like to be a young parent or how, or even how do these dominant discourses affect the lived experiences of young parents or are they accurate to um, in describing young parents? My questions are really much more about um, what does this dominant discourse accomplish politically, socially, culturally for in, in our nation? And, um, and so that was kind of my way of my entry point into the, um, the conversation about young parenthood. Yeah. Great. When you were talking about the internet research, do you have for any listeners that might similarly do internet-based research or are interested in doing internet-based research, do you have any savvy strategies you discovered? <laughs> um, well, look, I don't know how savvy they are, but I'm, I'm guessing there are more savvy ones that technologically savvy people would, would advocate for. But I just started um, doing things like screenshotting. I think we talked, you and I talked about this before, yeah. and I think this is something you do as well screenshotting the website, the web pages that I want to talk about so that I have them um, when they, because they will change. They always change. They, they <laughs> change. So having, kind of having the wherewithal to um, create my own archive of what I'm analyzing on the internet um, was really the learning curve uh, that I went through. <laughs> and also, and even just, even with um, art, news articles and um, and scholarly articles, you know, I, making sure that I have my own archive of those things because I did have the experience when I was writing that Taming the Media Monster article that you referenced earlier of not being able to go back to a, a news item that I had found in LexisNexis. And uh -huh. some, something had happened where LexisNexis was no longer contracting with that um, media outlet and the article was gone and I, I really struggled to find it elsewhere. And so, um, and I should have created my own version of it at the time, but that was so early on in my process that I wasn't, um, savvy enough to do that at the time. So. Oh, listeners heed her warning. Um, we just experienced this on an article that we're collaborating on about power to decide. Right. Uh, where through the period of when we submitted it, the website shifted its main slideshow, which we analyzed in the opening paragraph. <laughs> so right. we, we both have screenshots of that opening slideshow. So I think that's a great lesson to learn. Um, if I may, can I talk about your recent article in The Hill? Sure. Okay. So in the, because I think it's really timely and important um, since publishing your book, you published the, your article in The Hill where you warn readers that we should not use 
teen pregnancy prevention as a justification for providing youth comprehensive sex education, even though we might feel like we need to grasp for some justifications in the current political climate. Why do you think this is so important to keep in mind? Mm -hmm. So, um, um, well, the, the main reason is that I, I think, and I, I think you agree with me, and I think <laughs> some, some, there are a lot of um, activists out there now who agree with this, that, that we really shouldn't be preventing teen pregnancy at all. We, that, that shouldn't be the goal, um, because as and we haven't talked about this yet in this interview, but there's plenty of research out there that really uh, throws into question all of the... Um, all of the claims that have been made since the 80s about the effects of teen pregnancy in terms of how it supposedly causes poverty and high school dropout and um, various other um, issues. And so the the question of whether teen pregnancy itself is actually, or whether the timing of pregnancy is actually um, something we should be concerned about is up for debate. And I think I, I come down on the side of, no, we shouldn't be concerned about the timing of pregnancy. So that's the first reason. Um, and then another reason is that there are so many other benefits to providing comprehensive sex ed to young people. I mean, so many benefits. I, I don't think that the preventing teen pregnancy, I, I wouldn't even say like, that's one of the benefits. Cause as I said, I don't think that that that's something we should be doing. I think um, we should be promoting comprehensive sex ed in the name of promoting and uh, creating the conditions for reproductive self-determination and for the, the most kind of healthy and safe outcomes for, for young people. And that those are much more compelling uh, reasons to be to to educate young people about their bodies and about sex than than the idea that we can prevent them from doing certain having certain outcomes or doing certain behaviors when it comes to pregnancy right and i really appreciate that because something i always get a question i always get with my research is okay well then how are we going to prevent you know these outcomes or how how would you suggest that we talk about sex and pregnancy with young people. And what I so appreciate about that article is that you give those ideas well because uh, everybody should be able to determine what kind of reproductive outcomes they want, outcomes they want. And uh, I loved that you brought in the Me Too aspect of if we're learning anything in this cultural moment is that we've got a lot of work to do around consent and educating people from the get go what consent is, what it looks like, role playing, how it goes. Um, and why not use that as a timely and urgent marker of our need for comprehensive sex education in this political climate with this leader? Um, OK, so great. What do you think remains unknown or what future research is needed in this area? Are you going to do it? <laughs> um, well, I think, I, I mean, I think things, things are really changing quickly. And um, like even, I think, well, obviously with the election of Donald Trump, things have changed when it comes to teen pregnancy. And that's part of what I talk about in that article in The Hill too, is that, that in our current context, 
even teen pregnancy prevention is not necessarily, um, even though that has been the most compelling uh, narrative that people have used to advocate for comprehensive sex ed, under the Trump administration, it is it isn't any it isn't as compelling as it used to be. In fact, the the um, defunding of the teen pregnancy prevention grants that the Trump administration attempted to do well did do, and then it was reversed was yeah. in the it, it was because of the claim that that was not something that teen pregnancy prevention was not something we needed to prioritize anymore. Right. Um, and so, so I think new research on what this sort of new iteration is um is needed um and also um this question which i think that our our paper that we're working on together uh, on the power to decide which is the rebranding of the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy really addresses is how do how do these how do neoliberal organizations continue to adapt to the challenges that they face from from grassroots organizations and from activists. Um, I think that more research on, on that question is, is needed. And, and I do think that our paper addresses that. <laughs> so we are working on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this was lovely. Uh, thank you for telling us more about your book. Is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't gotten to? Other than just, again, to thank you so much for devoting your time to talking with me about this. Um, it's always so great to talk to you, and I'm I'm so glad that we get to work together in multiple capacities these days. <laughs> I am, too, and I hope we continue to do it. Um, okay, that's a wrap. <laughs> thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.